Live from the JLE in London, join us for 20 minutes weekly with Rabbi Dr. Akiva Tetz, hosted by myself, Mena Reisner, as we delve into the hottest topics of the 21st century. From the origins of the universe, vaccine conspiracies, genetics and Jewish law, relationships and everything in between, you are listening to Conversations with Rabbi Tetz. Welcome back again, Rabbi Tatz. Thank you for a fascinating series on education, on child-rearing. We did touch upon a subject that was asked how to bring out every child's uniqueness, how to bring out every child's individuality, and you said that we should probably devote an episode solely for this. So I'd like to revisit that because that's something of great importance and ask you how do you promote every child's individuality? Okay, thank you, Rabbi Razna. That's a very important subject. I suggest we split this into two parts. The first part, let's talk about the theory of individuality in Judaism, how we approach that subject, how we look at it in a global way. And then let's talk separately about how you bring that down to, let's call it brass tacks. How do you actually do that? How do you figure out what your unique role is in the world? How do you help your students or your children? How do you help them find their own uniqueness and their own special identity? Let's talk first about the the theory of individuality. The common misconception, I would say, is that Orthodox Judaism promotes a sameness and a regimented and disciplined similarity between people. And I think you could forgive people for thinking that. After all, we do the same actions, we fulfill the same commandments, we're meticulous about the same details, many of us even wear similar uniforms. If you look at our community from the outside, I think you'd be quite justified in thinking that these people are brainwashed robotic clones. In fact, you could take this even further. The code of Jewish law is fussy about the order in which you cut your fingernails, the order in which you put your shoes on, the order in which you tie your shoelaces, and it's not the same order in which you put your shoes on. If I were a psychologist looking at a system like that, I would say this is a cleverly designed system to produce mindless robots. Further, I would say even obsessives. But anyone who lives in the Orthodox world knows that Orthodox Jews following those meticulous programs are not robotic clones. If anything, they are rampant individualists. In fact, if you look in our halachic tradition, Jewish law, you see that our authorities differ with each other in extreme ways. Now, that's a very interesting observation. How is it that exponents of the same system, which pays attention to meticulous detail and demands from us a very formulaic and similar role. How is it that such a system produces such flamingly individual minds and opinions? That's a very interesting challenge. Let's deal with that first. I think the answer to that is that the fact that we do the same actions does not mean that we are mindless clones. Let me give you an analogy. When two great musicians play the same classical piece, they play exactly the same notes. No question about that. If one of them changes the notes, he's totally incompetent. They play exactly the same notes, and yet the music is radically different. A great expert could identify who's playing that piece of music at that particular time. Not only that, by the way, each great musician, every time he or she plays the piece, it's different because it's a different stage in your development and your musical expertise, your career progress. And therefore, just like two great musicians playing the same piece are radically different in the expression they give to that piece, the notes are not theirs. The notes are the notes written by the great composer, but the music certainly is theirs. And so in Judaism, when you follow the program that the Torah has laid out for us, 
indeed we are playing the same notes, but the music has to be yours. When you pray from the same sidra that I do, and you the same, you say exactly the same words that I do, and we want to say those words. Those words are composed by the greatest composers of all time, but it's your prayer which is very different in its emotion and its rich meaning than mine. And therefore, yes, Orthodox Judaism prescribes the same actions for all of us, but it encourages us to play the music in a very, very unique and special way. Let's not forget also that within the practice of Orthodox Judaism, there's plenty of time for your own freestyle self-expression, of course. When you pray, you daven the Amidah, you pray the set formula of Jewish prayer. When you get to the end of that, you are encouraged to say your own, by all means. You could spend 10% of the time on the formula and 90% of the time on your own. We're not denying personal freestyle expression. However, there is a formula part, and that is written and composed and ordained by either God's mind or the minds of the great sages through history, and we're very anxious to play those notes correctly. And then, of course, there's yours. I would give you a musical analogy. In many great famous pieces of music, the composer writes the music, and then he writes cadenza. Cadenza means where the musician gets to play freestyle. Between you and me, Rabbi Rasner, that's often far inferior hmm. to what the great composer wrote. But nevertheless, you get time to express your own free expression. So it's a misconception that Judaism is seeking to produce mindless copies. It is the correct conception that Judaism is aiming to produce extremely individual, potently original minds. The goal of a Torah education is really to make your student independent, independent of you as a teacher and independent of all others as well. Talmudic training, for example, is a training in radical originality, in creative thought. And anyone who knows anything about Torah masters knows that the great Torah minds through history, and one experiences it when, when you get to know them in your own generation, are radically independent and very hard to influence from the outside, very opinionated. Of course, following the paths of truth, no question about that, but radical in their originality. The next step I would say in this discussion is that when a system is built, any intelligent, intelligently built system, be it a machine, be it a work of art, every piece is necessary and every piece is unique. No two bolts doing the same job in a mechanical system. If one bolt's good enough, then you only use one. When nuts and bolts are thrown into a system, it must be because they're necessary. If unnecessary nuts and bolts are thrown into a machine, the engineer is incompetent. If a painter splashes a paint on a painting that are unnecessary, the painter is incompetent and he destroys the painting. Every dab of paint, every word in a poem, every incident in a story, every note in a musical score is absolutely essential. Not there for no reason. And therefore we can understand, we ought to understand that when God creates a machine or a work of art, such as the universe, every piece is necessary and unique. No two human beings are here to duplicate the same pattern. If God put you into the world as a unique individual right, and placed you with your unique perceptions and intelligence and amount of money and the particular parents and the place and time at which you were born, then that is uniquely necessary. And that particular unique isolated role needs to be brought to its perfection through your life. And therefore, the beginning assumption we make in Judaism is that you are not a copy of anyone else. No one else could do your job. That's the Mishnah that says everything has a place and every person every person has every person and everything has a place and every person and thing has a time. It must be you doing your job in your place at your time. So with this background, we understand that our goal here is to move towards a very strongly expressed individuality. The next step, I think, is this. The great teacher Rabbi Dessler presents a masterful overview of the theory of individuality. 
a beautiful, beautifully structured presentation about the nature of structure in the world. And here's what he says. He says there are three levels of order in the world. Order, symmetry, structure, three levels of order. The first one he calls Seder L'Shem Seder, order for the sake of order. That's the natural basic symmetry inherent in the world. Anyone who studies the, the universe realizes that it's built on a pattern of order. Mathematics, chemistry, physics, nuclear physics, the, the, the branches of science that underlie the world are highly structured and highly ordered. In fact, the very fact that we can apprehend and grasp the world is because it's based on a mathematical system, precise system obeying rules that we can grasp and apply to the world. And that's the natural order of the world, and it has a beautiful symmetry. I'm talking about the natural world, not the human world. The human world, as you know, is total chaos. <laughs> I'm talking about the world that God created, not the one we messed up. So the divinely created world is exquisitely symmetrical and exquisitely ordered. We have a sense of that in our minds. How do we relate to a symmetrical environment? Well, it depends. Let's say you're feeling at peace and all your inner life is in harmony and peaceful and you find yourself in a symmetrical environment. You're on a journey, on a train, and it's symmetrical, clickety-click, clickety-click, clickety-click. How do you feel about that symmetry? Wonderful. In that cadence and rhythm, you hear all sorts of music and melodies. It's just wonderful and soothing. But if you're in a symmetrical environment and you experience inner chaos, you're traveling to some feared destination, that sound drives you crazy. And the reason is because the inner disharmony is being mocked by the external harmony. And so we, we resonate with the external world in that way. If you come home at the end of a perfect day, everything has gone right in your life and everything's looking rosy, and you walk into your home and you find the, the furniture symmetrical, but there's one chair slightly out of line. You walk over and you put it into line because everything must look perfectly symmetrical in your external world to echo the internal world. But if you come home after a terrible day, when you're in a, in a turmoil and everything's going wrong and you're experiencing emotional chaos and everything's symmetrical in the house, then you walk over and you just kick it out of line. And it's not only the furniture usually that gets kicked around. But that is our resonance with the world. I'll just take a moment to point out something quite striking that Rabbi Destler's Talmud of Miller used to point out. He used to point out that as we approach the Messianic era over the last few centuries of history, our Kabbalistic notion is that the world moves from order to disorder. The pre-Messianic world will be a breakdown of structure entirely. And he pointed out something quite striking, that if you look in all the modes of art expression over the last few centuries, all of them move from structure to chaos. Very, very interesting. If you go back to um, a medieval painting, for example, right, or you go back to Renaissance painting, there was a time, as he used to put it with his rice sense of humor, when a painting of a bowl of fruit looked like a bowl of fruit. <laughs> right? And if you go back to Rubens or to Michelangelo or to Leonardo, the paintings were meticulously representative and realistic. And as the art of painting progressed over the centuries, today you have completely, you know, the modern art. You know, what is modern art? The fellow throws a can of paint over his shoulder, gets his dog to walk around on it on the canvas, and he sells it to the Metropolitan <laughs> Museum with a sign saying, angst. You know? now, <laughs> Rabbi you may pick up a lot. I'm not a fan of modern art. But be that as it may, be that as it may, it's very interesting that we move from structure into deconstruction. Music, go back to Baroque music, Bach, meticulously mathematical. Then you get into the classical era, which is freer but structured. Then you enter the romantic phase, Beethoven's later period, for example, structured but freer. And then you start moving into modern and postmodern music, which is just total chaos. When Stravinsky's first atonal piece was played in Paris, the audience tried to kill him. 
you know, they were so offended by, by the chaotic sounds. But today that's normal. Our audience probably knows that one of the most famous postmodern composers, John Cage, just to give you an example, one of his most famous pieces is four minutes, 32 seconds of silence. <laughs> and believe it or not, Rabbi Rasner, you can buy famous recordings. <laughs> the audience sits there for four and a half minutes listening to the silence. Now, had you done that 200 years ago, you would have been committed as insane. But of course, anything goes. One modern composer composes by putting his cat on the keyboard and sticking it with a pin. And as the poor cat tries to get off the piano, the audience listens to the sounds. <laughs> you know, so we talk about deconstruction. Sculpture. You look at a Greek sculpture, you can see every muscle, every sinew is completely representational. Modern sculptures are a pile of tin cans welded together or a fellow standing on one foot till he gets tired. You know, that's theater. You go back to a Greek drama or Greek tragedy. It's very, very meticulous and rigid rules. Today they have what's called theater of the absurd. One famous modern play consists of two garbage cans on the stage. Every now and then a lid lifts up and a head pops out and says something existential, and then the garbage can closes, you know, so... I think we're in the wrong business. <laughs> <laughs> That's called theater of the absurd. And it's amazing that the same thing applies to music, art, poetry. There was a time when poetry was symmetrical. Look, look at an Elizabethan sonnet. It goes da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. Today, poetry has no rhyme scheme, no rhythm, no spelling, no meaning, you know. So you're going... In art, music, poetry, sculpture, architecture, interior design. You know, since coming to England a couple of years ago, I went to see Wordsworth's house in the Lake District. It's a national monument. Amazing thing. As you walk into the ornate drawing room through a very ornate door, the guide shows you a door identical to the one you've come through in the opposite wall and points out to you that that door's a fake. It's a fake. But people couldn't bear to live in a room that wasn't perfectly symmetrical. They put a fake door in one wall, so the room would be symmetrical with the door. Today, that's completely unthinkable. Today, one wall is purple, another one's green. There's things at strange angles. But Miller used to point out that in our approach to the pre-Messianic era, as our internal minds, our internal world, descends into chaos, we seek to see the same in our cultural expression around us. Very interesting insight. Anyway, be that as it may, that's the first level of order. The second level, a higher level of order, Rabbi Desler calls Seder L'Shem Toitz Oisof, order for the sake of its result. For example, the index imposed on a library. This is not just intrinsic symmetry, symmetry. this is symmetry with a purpose. The reason you have the order of a library so you can find the books you need. Here, by the way, Rabbi Hanan Wasserman, one of our great rabbis, used to point out that when you have an index, the more you have, the better. When you don't have an index, the more you have, the worse. If you have a library of 10 books with no index, it doesn't matter, you'll find what you need. But if you have 10,000 books with no index, you'll never find what you need. And that, by the way, is the first goal of Talmudic study, is to build an organized mind. We don't want a child to learn facts when he studies Talmud. We want a child to learn how to think about facts, how to organize them. A powerful thinker doesn't know a lot of details. A powerful thinker knows how to organize the details. A real doctor doesn't memorize details of physical presentation. A real doctor understands the diagnostic underlying principle that explains all those details so you can think about it intelligently. And therefore, Talmud is an experience of learning how to order your thoughts and powerfully put them into a system. Right? Does that mean that learning Talmud is harder today than it ever was because of the chaos surrounding? I personally think that's probably true. I think it's because of our descent of our generations. Rabbi Reisner, today we live in a world where you aren't even required to be logical. You can say anything you like. 
freedom of expression. Absolutely, but you but it's taken to extremes. At least a generation ago, people might have lied, but at least they knew there was a standard of truth. Today, you can say whatever you want. The president of a great country can get up and just make any assertions about COVID, about medicine, about science, about <laughs> fact, and they aren't even, not, no, no one even expects him. There's no objective truth There's anymore. There's no objective truth. We're in a post-truth generation. Yes, I think that's true. Let's talk about the third level of order. And that's the final level, and that Rabbi Desler calls Seder l'shem achtus ha'pe'ula, order for the sake of unity of function. This is a higher level of order. For example, when you have a machine, each piece needs to be in place so that the machine functions. Right? Every piece of a biological structure, or an electronic circuit, or a mechanical system, or the engine of your car, each piece needs to be disposed correctly so that the whole thing works. Now you may ask, and I'm sure our listeners are bursting to ask this question, What's the difference between the second and the third level of order? Right? Asira or Reisner, that was on your mind as well. Mm. Yes. When you have the books disposed correctly in a library, it makes the library function. When you have the parts of an engine disposed correctly, it makes the engine function. So why do we distinguish between them? And the answer is quite obvious, and it's a very important insight. The answer is that when the library is in disarray and the order is just completely destroyed, yet each book remains valid as a book. But when one piece of a machine is out of place, nothing means anything. When you're driving through Death Valley, 500 miles from nowhere in your four-wheel drive mechanical marvel, and a tiny screw falls out of the carburetor and gets buried in the desert sand and the car grinds to a halt, that little screw just became worth your life. Nothing works without it. When it's in place and functioning, it's so small and ridiculously insignificant, it's unnoticed, but it's worth everything. And every part's like that, which means that you may have parts that are so small and insignificant that they're completely unnoticed, but when one of them is missing, you see that nothing can function without that. And our notion, our Kabbalistic notion, is that that's how the universe is built. Each individual stands in a unique position. If you move out of line, you may seem infinitesimally small in comparison to the vast reaches of the universe, but you're necessary. We know that every Jew is compared to a letter in a Sefer Torah. Right? The word Yisrael spells an acronym for Yesh Shishim Ribo Otiot La Torah. There are 600,000 letters in the Torah. There are 600,000 root Jewish souls. Each one corresponds to a letter in a Torah. If one letter in a Sefer Torah is missing or cracked or illegible, the whole Torah is invalid. That's a remarkable thing. Many people say, Rabbi, why are you so obsessive in your, in your Judaism? You have a mezuzah. One letter's cracked a little bit. Oh, you say the whole thing's invalid. You know, it's there on average. You can read it. Let me ask you this. How does that person feel when he has a complex electronic you know, device, a radio, and one wire is cracked and there's a one millimeter gap in a wire and it's not working? Oh, it's there on average. No, it doesn't work. Even though that little millimeter of wire is so small, it's worth less than the smallest coin, but it's essential. Or this child is now, this person now conceiving a child and the biological program of his child in genetics, one gene slightly out of place. And it's a tragedy. The child is born with a serious handicap. Tell the person, no, it doesn't matter on on the average they're there. No. Integrated systems that require every part to be in place, require every part to be in place. Each one is critical. That's not true of a library where each book is valid on its own. And this is the level of spiritual unity. When, When the Torah came down, so to speak, each Jew was told to stand in a certain position, and each Jew received his or her portion in Torah. And if you say, I don't want to stand there, I want to stand aside, you crash the whole system. Immaturity means I don't want to stand there where you tell me to stand. I want to stand where I define. You feel amazing when you do that. You become a world unto yourself. But you just stepped out of reality. And you allow the the objective reality around you to crash into insignificance and grind to a halt. So that is our vision of the unity. And in fact, this is the only place you can see the oneness of God in the world. 
Hashem Elokeinu Hashem Echad doesn't mean that there's only one God. It means that all the parts amount to the same oneness. They're all essential. No nuts and bolts thrown into the universe that are accidental or arbitrary or spare. No spare parts, no spare human beings. And therefore, it's true that some parts are more important, some are more critical, and some are less critical, but they're all, they're all absolutely necessary, and all will be brought to an ultimate fulfillment. You know, as human beings, psychologically, we resonate with these energies. On the one hand, we have what we call the Lone Ranger Syndrome, and did it on my own, you know, the Lone Ranger. On the other hand, we thrill when we part of a mass whether it's a gymnastic display or aerobatics, see all the parts fitting in perfectly. That's a psychological paradox. If you thrill to being the fellow who scores the goal all on his own, you know, against his own team getting in the way, you know, all on his own, that's a great thrill. And yet we feel the thrill of being part of a crew or a team as well. I'll never forget, I was once a soldier in an army. And I was a medical officer in the South African army. Before becoming an officer, you have to learn to drill marching up and down, up and down, weeks and weeks and weeks, learning to 10,000 people in a platoon, you know, marching in exact precision. It's quite an amazing experience. When 10,000 people march in perfect time, you swell to the proportion of something much larger than you. You sort of disappear as an individual, and you lose all sense of exhaustion. You could just keep going forever. I'll never forget the experience of having to march past the grandstand on our final parade with the public watching you, and of course your own parents are there, you know, to watch you. I never forget the amazing temptation marching past the grandstand just to suddenly change my feet. You know, <laughs> of course they shoot you immediately, but it would be worth it. Your mother will see you. You know, your mum will see you. You know, it's a legacy. Yeah, there you go. So you have the paradoxical feeling that you're individual, and you you're all alone and the only meaningful part of the universe, and yet the feeling that you fit into something larger than yourself. The truth is they're both correct. You are unique. The universe would not function without you, and yet you're part of something much larger. The first exercise of experiencing that ought to be marriage, where two people lose their individuality meshed into another and paradoxically build something larger than the sum of the parts. And then again, paradoxically, instead of realizing that you've lost yourself in a love like that, you discover more about who you are. And with that newfound sense of identity at a new level of maturity, you put it back in. Now, this is a forgotten art largely, particularly on the part of men, but that's what it's meant to be. A person big enough can feel that unity in a family. A person with a bigger soul can feel that at the level of community. Somebody with a more developed and more mature spirit can feel the whole Jewish people throbbing together as an entity. Somebody even more mature can feel all of humanity and its interconnectedness and total interdependence and suffering for each other. And somebody yet bigger can feel the suffering of the universe, can feel the Shekhinah, the suffering of God, so to speak. A person who is very immature feels only their own locked into their own pettiness and their own, you know, what's bothering them and, and they can't see beyond that. But that's a great tragedy. Great tragedy to be obsessively locked into your own small world. That's not what we're here for. So these are the three levels of individuality. And the spiritual one, where you begin to see how parts mesh into a whole and a transcendent oneness manifests, that is the third level. And so this, I would say, is the introduction to our theory of unity. We are living at the third level of interaction, or Seda as he called it, where each part needs to grasp itself as absolutely unique and totally essential, and yet part of something far larger. The two are paradoxically in conflict and yet mesh into one whole. I think we should leave the discussion at this point. The next thing we need to discuss in our next session is how does this translate into action? How do you do this yourself? Thank you very much, Robert Tatz. That was fascinating. Looking forward for next week's continuation on the more practical side. We'll see you next week. Thank you.